In the ring with Eusebius Merkaiser. Eusebius Merkaiser. In January 2016, events outside Paris unfolded that were very dramatic and were to lead to a court case that illuminated some of the worst of South African realities. Two black farm workers were killed and several white farmers were accused of their murder. The result of the entire saga that unfolded in subsequent years had been captured in an absolutely brilliant book, These Are Not Gentle People, by BBC journalist Andrew Harding, who is a fantastic experienced broadcast journalist, as well as an amazing author who had written The Mayor of Mogadishu, a book I still recommend, and then this being his second book that he has just been awarded the Sunday Times Literary Prize for Nonfiction for this past year. And I thought in light of that, it may be useful for you to listen to a conversation I had with him for Cover to Cover, a YouTube-based literature program that I co-host with my friend and fellow journalist, Joanne Joseph. Andrew digs deep, not just in his writing and journalism, but also in interviews where he talks about his work. And not only do I think every South African should read this book, which really is an absolutely brilliant, scary, incisive, patient, non-judgmental portrayal of South African realities that endure to this day. Um, But in addition to that, it's just wonderful to hear an author being so incredibly humble, yet at the same time deeply reflective in an interview about this book that he had written. So I want you to enjoy this interview. We've taken it from our YouTube episode that flighted a couple of months ago. It remains relevant because good books remain relevant across time and space. And I want you to listen to it and then go out and buy the book, read it and discuss it widely. In the Ring with Eusebius Merkaiser. Eusebius Merkaiser. In this next segment of today's show, I'm interviewing someone who also wrote an absolutely amazing show. At some point, we're going to have to tell you what books are crap, because quite clearly, all the authors that we've been featuring are really good. Uh, but we mean it sincerely. And it's my pleasure to be interviewing author and broadcaster Andrew Harding, who works for the BBC. He's an excellent journalist, uh, you know, on radio and TV. But um, as excellent as he is, I reckon he's an even better writer. Uh, He wrote The Mayor of Mogadishu, which is brilliant. I recommend you go and buy it. And then he wrote the second book, which is as as good um, as his first book was. And you can see I'm holding it right here. These are not gentle people. Beautiful cover and a lovely title as well. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. What an introduction. Very flattered. It's well deserved. In 2016, in January, in Paris of all people, something happened. Tell us the story. Uh, an elderly white farmer is attacked, it appears. He presses an alarm button in his isolated farmhouse and his neighbours and relatives, the Van der Vestesen clan, a very powerful group of people in the, in the fields and the commercial farms outside Paris, rush thinking there's been a farm attack. Um, they're told two, possibly three black men attacked old Ludi. Um, Two two men are chased across the fields and quickly caught, arrested by the farmers and their sons. And then over the course of several hours, they are beaten systematically uh, by a number of those men. Um, 
The police arrive, the two men are taken away, and both are pronounced dead the next morning. Those two black men turn out to have been farm workers, known to some of those people who actually assaulted them. And then there is eventually a trial, which frankly still hasn't finished today for, for something years later. There's not been sentencing. Um, and this one moment of collective fury causes these extraordinary frictions and traumas in the community, not just, of course, in the black community, which is trying to make sense of why these two men were so brutally attacked, but also in the white community, very close-knit farming community, who are suddenly forced to defend what happened there um, and to defend their furious, violent reaction. And that splits them apart in extraordinary ways too. And then you have this trial at which all these tensions are revealed and these extraordinary flaws and failures of South Africa's modern institutions simply sort of collapse or come to the fore in the most shocking ways, in ways that I never really expected when I first sort of took a chance, if you like, on this story in, in January, February 2016, when I, when I thought, hang on, this is, this is potentially the makings of a book. It, it absolutely is, and it's going to be more than that. It's a documentary, feature films, it is just so illuminating. And what's excellent about your book is that you don't try to deliberately draw links for the reader in terms of what does it mean. You don't try to step back from the minutiae. You keep with the characters, with the community, and it reads like a work of fiction, other than the fact that it's all too darn real. And I think that achievement from a writing point of view is absolutely special. So let's honor that by staying with that. Some of the characters are really interesting, and we could take random examples. The book is not reductive as a black-white story, even though you've said black farm workers, white farmers that go on trial for these men in the dock. There are other elements of South African life that, that are illuminated, like for example, the experiences in the community of an Indian magistrate. Introduce her to the viewers. So this is Leshni Pillay, and she was one of the reasons that I very quickly thought, hang on, this, this really could be a story because she was not only very frank with me in the sort of sessions between court where, when we spoke and she would compare what was going on, the pressure she felt she was under as, as a magistrate to convict quickly or at least to deny bail to some of these white farmers. She was comparing it to Zimbabwe, she was furious that she felt her career was being threatened and in fact she was pushed out of the judiciary essentially because of this case. Um, but her frankness about what it was like to arrive in Paris in this Afrikaans town as a very young, in her late 20s, magistrate, um, and to meet the kind of hostility, the racial hostility, and then to overcome it, and then for this case again, as inevitably a murder case probably must, to pull at those, at those tensions again. It was And because it's a small town, you can't escape the glare of the public at your local spa. You can't, and yet what struck me so much about Paris and Tumaholi, the township, is that they are just two different worlds. So for instance, although I talked on the local community radio station in Tumaholi and I talked on the community station in Paris, the only journalists who are actually attending the trial mostly were from the Paris Gazette. 
which isn't on sale, it's not distributed to, to Maholi. So whenever I went there, I talked to people there, there was this absolute thirst for knowledge about what was going on, but nobody knew, no one had a clue the whole way through, even once the trial ended, because it wasn't picked up by any local media there. Um, and it, I think that underscores the kind of divisions that still exist. That's an interesting division in terms of spatial apartheid geography and how that manifests in still racialized experiences in relation to the media and the justice system. But you've been rightly praised by many professional reviewers and ordinary readers alike for telling a story that illuminates the racial dynamics in Paris, but it doesn't reduce the characters to their racial essences. And, and I think you do that well because there are also questions of, and I want you to speak into this next part, uh, language politics and also class dynamics, which in South Africa we don't always lift to the surface because the race stuff is so predominant. So for instance, within the, farm, the white farming community, some of the farm managers feel that they are very much inferior to the young sons these sort of educated young sons of the, the sort of aristocracy, of white farming aristocracy. Uh, and one of those, Fani, ended up being really one of the only accused who actually opened up to me and, and spoke. Yes, so I mean, it isn't just a black-white thing, clearly. Um, and I suppose what I wanted to do, and you, you touched on this, as a journalist, but also as a, as a consumer of literature and films and whatever, I don't like my opinions being force-fed to me. Um, I don't like to be told how to feel. And so what I tried to do with this book, and, I, and it's a very difficult one because there's so much horrific aggression and racism and violence within it, but I, didn't, I wanted the reader to kind of come to their own conclusions about that. And I wanted to humanize, and Mo was talking about complexity earlier, and I wanted to make these people, even the people who you might want to scream at for what they did, I wanted to show them as complex people with their own real traumas, if you like, about their own experiences on the farms. Well, I'm going to come back to that because that's exactly the last question that I planned to ask you. Um, before we get there, you've already mentioned something which I also plan to explore. South African institutions are on trial. You know, it, it breaks my heart. One of the reasons this trial couldn't be wrapped up efficiently is in part because our criminal justice system in terms of the value chain lets all of us down as South Africans. Tell us a little bit about the coroner, the mixing up of the bodies and the identities of the two black men and the state of forensic pathology. So it was very useful for the defense that the throughout the trial the prosecution made no attempt to establish exactly who did what to which of these two confused black bodies. No one tried to differentiate who was Samuel Chika and who's Simon Jubeba. Um, I knew, I was obsessed about it, uh, and I had a very clear understanding from early on about who was whom. But even at the end, the judge, right at the end, called the mother of one, this is three years into the case, to try and understand, well, hang on, which one was that one? And this permeated not just the defense who obviously stood to gain from any confusion but the prosecution as well um, the doctor misdiagnosed both men at the local clinic almost certainly the autopsy as you say appallingly 
inexpertly done, huge holes in it, huge confusion about who these two men were. Were they even the right bodies that were inspected and, and analyzed? And even the defense's great expert, even he fell into the trap. A man with endless pages on his CV couldn't actually work out who was whom. They all fell into this trap, I mean, highly racialized, racially charged trap of, of not caring who was Simon and who was Samuel. Yeah, that was... And, and that to me spoke to the institutions as well, as yeah, you say, that was an institutional that, that, What that speaks to, as you rightly say, is that we love narrative in South Africa and narratives that center around experientially questions of identity, racialized, class, linguistic, geographic. But what comes out in this work is the damage to the justice project that is done as a result of technical ineptness within the state. And I can understand why these things take a long time, or I've learned to understand that South African justice moves slowly. And the Zuma case is what we all know. But I mean, it is astonishing to me that two years after the trial ended, more than two years, the judge who was supposed to give her full verdict, a full judgment, written judgment within three months, she still hasn't done that. So you have Ruth Kokota, mother of Samuel Chicha, sitting, waiting in a shack, hoping that she can get some sort of clarity on what happened and on the punishment for those who were accused and it be able to perhaps take her own legal steps to find a way to kind of move on financially and so on. But everybody, everyone in this case is still on hold, unable to resume their lives. We, we're going to run out of time. I'm going to be greedy. One minute each for each of these questions very quickly because all of them fascinate me. Third last question. How did you get people to talk to you and open up? Time. Um, there's no special skill. I had the time, the luxury of taking a chunk of time off from my BBC job. I hung around. At first, I was worried, particularly the Afrikaners, um, close-knit farming community, here's this Englishman. Why on earth would we talk to him? A lot of them didn't, but a lot of them did. And I think there was an almost a therapeutic role seeing me there, an outsider. That's what I do as a journalist anyway. That's what we do as a profession. The foreign correspondent comes in. Um, I think it's an incredibly important role, Absolutely. whoever's doing it, yeah. and I'm always sticking up for the role of the foreign <laughs> correspondent and the idea of it, wherever it be. Penultimate question. It is also a story of how families are ripped apart. The Van der Westhuizens, for example, couldn't decide whether or not to take plea bargains. So speak to me about how familial fishes were exposed. The first reaction of a lot of the farmers and their advisors, legal advisors, was say nothing. Look, we caught these guys, we gave them a good kicking, end of story. We were in the right, these two guys died, that's not our fault. Um, but over time, as it became clear that the Hawks, under political pressure, because this was one of those unusual, if you like, um, farm murders that goes against the grain, um, white on black, um, huge political pressure to break this case, huge pressure on these families, and suddenly, technological breakthroughs, I don't want to spoil it because a lot of people haven't followed the case. Big technological breakthroughs produce evidence that splits the families apart. Some being forced to carry the can, if you like, and others perhaps 
equally as guilty, perhaps more guilty, walk away. Last question. We'll explore it in full on another occasion because it's too big for one minute. But touch on it. You don't like being told what you think, and therefore you wrote the book brilliantly, and you've been praised by many reviewers for this in such a manner that you don't take judgment. But we live in a country where we like people to take judgment, some of us. How, how do you feel about that? Do you, do you like the fact that many people recognize that you suspended moral judgment? Because some people would say, but why isn't Andrew also inscribing moralism into the text? I'm just thinking of an interview I did with Siswe and Bofu Walsh, who said, I wanted you to stand on a chair and go, this is a horrific racial murder, um, which I get. But I personally don't like that kind of journalism and that kind of literature, if I can claim it as that. Um, I want to find that out, at least to an extent myself, although I think it's clear from, I hope everyone in the book, every character in the book feels that to some extent I've told their truth, but I hope that a reader will be able to form their own conclusions, and I think it's pretty clear. Absolutely. I hope the BBC gives you time off for more writing, because your writing is so important besides being brilliant. Thank, Thank you so much for sharing you. it with Thank us. Go get a copy of this book. It is absolutely amazing. In the ring with Eusebius Makaiser.